Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Tom, welcome to the show. Ryan, thank you very much for having me. So, Tom, let's get straight to a question that's probably on your mind a lot these days. The question is, why is Cat Taylor so amazing? <laughs> so let's establish for anybody who's listening to this who Cat Taylor is. Cat Taylor is the person I'm married to, and she is probably the hardest working human being I know, and that's not a joke. And so the reason that she gets so much done is that she is on it for so many hours in the day with such intensity. And so she is the CEO of our community bank, co-CEO with another person who's fantastic. So she spends a ton of time on that. And she's very creative in the way that she thinks about models. We came up with the idea of a community bank where the money could only go to making more loans or back to the community as a way of being really mission-driven together. But we've also done uh, something in farming slash ranching that was really Catherine's idea, thinking about how to have a uh, organic ranch that sequesters carbon in the soil. Now, that's something that not a lot of people thought about in 2002, but she did. So I just think she's really creative in terms of models, and then she works her ass off to get the details right. And, you know, that's just a very unusual combination of being a visionary and being absolutely right down in the weeds on every detail. Yeah, I must say Kat's one of my top five favorite women in the world. So she's, <laughs> you're, you're very lucky to be married to her. She also is, you know, the other thing about Catherine that is true that you see that is a gift is that she is very, very brave. And so the other night I was reminded we were at a uh, party for Dolores Huerta, who is 87 years old and still doing house parties to train people to be activists. And you think, wow, Dolores Huerta is just a driven human being to get it done and to absolutely do the work and not promote herself, but just get stuff done. And I see that same drive and that same passion in my life. One other quick thing about Kat is when was the first time she sang? Like, has she always been singing or or is this a more recent phenomenon? You know, so Catherine loves to sing sing a meaningful song often that she writes the words to at social gatherings and at meetings. And she's been singing since she was in the choir in church as a little girl. So she's somebody, you know, really from that, her whole family has that tradition of uh, music and song. So, you know, that comes to her very naturally. Cool. Well, switching gears a little bit, when and why did you decide to make climate change your number one priority? Well, you know, we got involved politically really in 2002 when we could see that George W. Bush was going to be a disaster as a president and was going to be very, very dangerous for the future of America. And I think maybe we were slower than other people to figure that out because during the election, we were definitely for Gore, but we, we, didn't, we did not think that George W. Bush would be a bad president. We thought he'd be a president like his father. And then by 2002, we decided, no, this guy's going to be a disaster. And we got very involved trying to work for John Kerry to you know, be on the side of the angels in terms of the future of the United States of America. And that got us involved. And then starting in about 2007, I could see from our work at the bank and from other things that I was doing that most times the American system works pretty well, but for some reason in climate, it wasn't working at all. And it seemed like an issue that could overwhelm us if we didn't deal with it. 
So I felt as if, okay, for some reason, this thing is out of control in our society. And I started trying to apply some positive energy to it, along with a lot of other people who knew more about it than I did. But I started to try and get Stanford University to do research in it, try and get Yale University to research in it, and gradually got sucked into more and more to trying to figure out why is the American society not dealing with a, with a problem that it is absolutely equipped to, to solve. You know, the larger the problem, the more America in the past has always stepped up together and solved it. And why is, it, why is this a partisan issue? Why is this a regional issue? Why is this not the kind of issue that American business, American research, American innovation, and the hearts and minds of Americans just don't go and solve for ourselves and for the world and make ourselves better employed, richer, and, and uh, healthier as a result? I couldn't understand why it wasn't happening. So I kind of saw this huge problem that for some reason, the American political system was not willing to address comprehensively. And so that's how it happened. I mean, I just kept wondering, you know, this is America. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. One of the more exciting developments that you've been involved with is the Project Drawdown. And actually, my business partner, Kevin Bayuk, is a, the senior financial analyst. So he's been doing all-nighters, analyzing all the data. Um, but I'm wondering, for folks who don't know, could you just give an overview of what Project Drawdown is? And could you also speak to some of the results that surprised you? Project Drawdown is a comprehensive, it, it starts from an idea, which is getting to net zero carbon emissions isn't enough. That ultimately we're going to have to be at negative. That, and that's what drawdown means. It's going to have to be drawing down carbon from the atmosphere and re-sequestering it in a way that it was before we started industrialization. It's edited and collated by Paul Hawken. But it is, that's the idea, and it's going to take a couple of forms, and one of the forms is a book with the 100 most important solutions to get us to draw down. And this is an you know, incredibly dense book in the sense that it's actually very available to a reader in the sense that you can understand it, and it's interesting, and they're you know, beautiful pictures, and it's very informative and fun. But behind it, as you mentioned, is just an enormous amount of research. And... You know, the, the, the thinking is very broad in the sense that the, the, the kinds of things that you would expect to be in there, like microgrids, are in there. But the other, the kinds of some things that you might not expect, like the education of girls, are also in there. So when you think about how we're going to get to a negative carbon world, it goes at it from every angle, from, you know, Yes, of course, from technology, but also from a big systems thinking and a cultural thinking. It's very, very exciting. And hopefully, it's going to become, it's going to go on the web and be updated on a real-time basis like Wikipedia, so that as things evolve, it gets edited, it gets updated, it gets refreshed, so that, you know, it is a living, breathing entity as opposed to just a book, which is actually pretty incredible, which is coming out, as I said, next week. But it's, it's a living, breathing entity that keeps getting updated where people go to understand what they can do, what their community can do, what their country can do, what the world has to do. So I think it's an important idea that we're not just trying, this is not just we need to get to zero. It's that we need to think about the world in a more positive and more holistic way. It sounds totally Californian, I got to say, 
But all these ideas are very practical in the real world, and they are supported by an immense amount of research and scholarship, so that it's very exciting to see this all pulled together in one place. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons the book is exciting for me is that it's based on solutions that exist currently. It's not, it's not sort of hedging that hopefully we invent some sort of new technology that solves everything. It's based on the hundred solutions that are available today. Is that right? Yes. I mean, one of the problems with the people who are always, you know, hoping that we discover, you know, the perfect solution that produces clean energy at zero cost and produces zero carbon is if you think that's going to happen, then there's no reason to work on anything else. And there's no reason to amend your behavior right now. And I think this is a much more practical um, way of thinking, as you said, both because it's current solutions, but also it's saying, no, we have to be on this right now. And here's the array of 100 most important things that we can be doing right now as this, you know, and at every level from an individual to the globe. Let's talk about our good friend, Mr. Donald McGillicuddy Trump. I'm not sure if you knew that was his middle name. Um, I thought his middle name was James. <laughs> it's, I think it's John, actually. But, um, John, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've been holding what I feel is a bit of a Zen paradox in my mind about next-gen climate and, and some of the work. You know, On one hand, I can't thank you enough for all the amazing work you're doing to protect the climate and calling out politicians who are trying to keep us from moving closer to, or to a renewable, low-carbon economy. And there's sort of this both things are true for me at the same time, where I, I think that is completely necessary. And I also am not sure, like, sort of traditional partisan sort of p- positioning uh, or, or, like, the, the kind of the Republicans, et cetera, are, are, not, are holding us back. I'm not sure it's actually going to change things on a fundamental level. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, how, how do you balance that? Or, or do you have any thoughts or responses to that idea that maybe both are true at the same time? Or I'm not sure. So, let, so here's your point. Here's your question. Yes, we need to be battling them, but battling them on a partisan basis may not be a way to actually change the underlying framework of, that Americans use in thinking about these problems. Exactly. That's what you're saying? Exactly, yeah. Uh, and I think, that's, I think your point is really good, so let's talk for a second about it. Um, one of the things that I am very uh, concerned about, aware of, and think about all the time is the lies that Republicans tell. And they, are, they have been used for at least since 1980 to shape the debate that we have in the United States on a number of issues. And, so, and, and what they do is they take one lie and they repeat it a thousand times until the, the, that becomes the basis for the conversation. So I'm going to get to climate, but let's talk about some of them. I mean, one of them, let's just start is, that government is bad for people. And that started with Ronald Reagan saying the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So he came in with a frame, government is bad for citizens, corporations are good for citizens. And that then becomes the discussion. And from, from my standpoint, that is an absolutely false frame to think about the world because we're in a representative democracy where we are, the government is not imposed on us. The government is us. We elect representatives to make decisions about our common interests in the common interest. And so to, to, to denigrate that and to assume that that is bad, but that corporations, which actually are completely self-interested, are somehow just and virtuous and here to help us 
is turning reality on its head, which they have done. And in terms of climate, their whole goal, you know, I, when I started getting in this, I said, look, we're Americans. We have a problem. We acknowledge and analyze the problem, and we may fight like hell about the best solution, but that's fine because nobody knows everything and nobody has perfect solutions. And so, you know, that's a normal American way of behavior to acknowledge the problem and fight about the best way to solve it and probably come up with a compromise that's better than anything you started with and then move on. But the Republicans did something different. They knew that once you've acknowledged the problem, you're only talking about what's the right solution. And for them, any solution was going to involve less carbon emissions, less use of fossil fuels, and it would hurt their bottom line. So therefore, they had to go to, we're not sure about the problem itself. We don't acknowledge that there is a problem. We don't acknowledge it's caused by human behavior. We don't acknowledge it's caused by the burning of fossil fuels. So when you say, you know, how much of this is about fighting back on a partisan basis and how much of it is about inspiring people and changing the framework that we use, I think it's very hard to change the frameworks that we use until we destroy the lies that are coming on the, on the, from the other side that really are Republican. And I think that, you know, there's a false equivalence in our society, and I see it in the press uh, frequently where they say everybody's, everybody's partisan, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's absolutely false equivalence because what we see as what we did in 2016, I mean, 80 to 90 percent of what we did was to try to register, engage, and empower American voters. Just get them involved in the issues, get them registered, try and encourage them to think about the issues and to participate at the polls. The broadest democracy, the best democracy, the most just democracy. If you look at the concerted decade-long or decades-long effort by Republicans, it is to deny the franchise to American citizens, to prevent American citizens from being able to exercise their constitutional right to vote. There's no equivalence. It's a false equivalence when you say that, that, that both sides are partisan. One side is standing up for the basic American values, and the other is trying really hard to deny them while dis describing themselves as overwhelmingly patriotic. So when, you, you know, so when we're in this thing, do we slavishly go along with democratic dogma? No. We also call out Democrats if they're not doing the right thing. We push Democrats to do the right thing. And we have, you know, if you, if you read a post that we put out today about the response to Trump's Syria strike, we were saying we think that what Democrats, Democrats applause for Trump has been very misguided and inappropriate and will lead to bad outcomes. But the fact of the, so the, but the fact of the matter is the overwhelming amount of disinformation, of falsehood, and of significant lying that must be refuted consistently and aggressively um, comes from Republicans. And, and it's a deliberate attempt. It's organized. It's been going on for years. And until we reshape some of the very basic debates and stop them from setting the framework for discussion, we won't get good outcomes. There is a partisan overlay to what's going on, but we try really hard to hold everybody to the same standard and to provide a consistent positive framework, not just that we're mad about the bad things that are being done. We like to say, I mean, when we talk about climate, we like to say it's not just that they're doing a bunch of bad things when they defund the EPA. It's not just they're doing a bunch of bad things when they deny the truth. 
it's not just they do a bunch of bad things when they act in the economic interest of their political supporters. It's they're not doing the good stuff. There are a whole bunch of good things that we believe are easy to do, that are right there to be done, that would be great for American workers and great for the health of Americans and great for the America's morality and world leadership that are easy to do, just waiting to be done, and they're not doing them. So it's, you know, when we look at this, you asked a complicated question and I gave you a complicated answer, but the fact of the matter is we are trying very hard to push forward a comprehensive view of what's good and that also means fighting back very consistently, aggressively of what we know to be bad. Should businesses continue to do the work that they're already doing? And to what extent should they be marching in the streets and sort of being more uh, politically engaged? Let's talk about the standard that business is being held to right now. Not B Corps, but basic, you know, what you think of as basic American business. Basic American business at this point, public companies. Let's talk about public companies for a second. Then we can talk about private companies because I think it's different. Public companies at this point are held to the standard of not breaking the law and serving the bottom line interests of their shareholders. That is basically the framework that the overwhelming number of public company CEOs follow because they feel as if their responsibility, their fiduciary responsibility is to the bottom line of their owners slash shareholders. And at the same time, there are American citizens who believe in obeying the law and believe in obeying the law. And so they don't want to do anything that's, you know, contrary to that. That's the basic standard. If you're in a private business, you can bring your own morality to the table and you can say, you know, we believe that doing the right thing is also important. So we don't need to maximize our shareholders income. We are going to do a bunch of things that, you know, take time, take resources, take effort that are for the good of society and live out our ideals. And that's going to mean we're not going to make as much money as we otherwise would. And that's great. But I think by and large, when you see public companies, they don't take that attitude and they feel as if they can't take that attitude because their fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders. Now, how do I think it should be? I think when you're a B Corp, you're recognizing that your responsibility is broader than just your shareholders. You certainly have a responsibility to your employees. You certainly have a responsibility to your community. And in fact, just making money for your shareholders wouldn't be nearly enough. You have to have some purpose in life that's, you know, both broader and more significant than that. And so when we think about into that stew, how do we think about where we're going and the role of business? So in my mind, the government sets the rules. The government sets the framework. The government is the, in the United States are the elected representatives of the people. They get to set the rules about how people are allowed to behave. And that has got to be the minimum behavior. So for instance, in our society, we have a rule. You're not allowed to employ a 12-year-old for 14 hours a day. Why not? Because we've decided that, 14, that 12-year-olds should be allowed to go to school. That's probably a, a sixth or seventh grader. And so they should be, it's not okay for you to be hiring that person. And that's a rule. Before that rule was passed, did companies employ 12-year-olds? Why, yes, they did. So the fact of the matter is, when we think about business, business is an incredibly creative, um, effective, hardworking tool of society to get things done. But, my, but I believe that the rules about what's right and wrong have to be set in a different arena. It has to be set by represent, elected representatives of the people, not by some private entity 
based on how much money they've amassed. And we should have absolutely no qualms about setting those rules. And so when we look and see what people do when there are no rules, they, my experience of business is somebody is going to go to the edge on the rules. So if farm workers are not covered by OSHA, then they're going to be treated in a way that is very dangerous. And the, the people who are, who are running the farms are going to claim that they're in the best interest of farm workers, but they're going to spray them directly with pesticides. They're not going to provide water, even though water's free. They're going to do all kinds of things. So there have to be rules to control behavior because otherwise somebody, maybe not everybody, but somebody is going to take it right up to the rule because the, the only thing that is going to control their behavior is going to be not breaking the law. And we live, let's go back to a very simple fact about the United States. We're a country of laws. We believe in laws. Laws are the way that we govern ourselves. So when we think about business, it's like having this very powerful animal and we need to have it running in the paths that we want. And we need it not to be doing the things that we don't want. And we need to prescribe those things. So from my standpoint, you know, it's like American business is the tool to get things done. Super effective, really hardworking, smart people, great at accomplishing things, great at innovation, best business people in the world, couldn't have more respect. But do I think that they have to be governed by the laws of the United States, set by the representatives of the people of the United States, which is a superior moral force? Absolutely. So, Tom, I know you got to jump to your next meeting here. Maybe two questions merged into one, just to leave folks with some thoughts. One is, who are you inspired by now? Like, who should folks look to as leaders of this next economy? And then how can our listeners help you grow uh, some of your work at Next Gen Climate or some of the other initiatives? So, you know, who are the leaders that you look to? And then how can people join what you're doing? Uh, well, let me, let me say this. Um, in terms of who I'm inspired by, I am really inspired by people who work over a long period of time to do something that they strongly believe in, whether it redounds to their personal benefit or not. And when you go around the state of California, which I have the great um, opportunity to do and meet some of those people, that is what inspires me. So for instance, I was in Los Angeles the week before last and I was talking to two women who are lawyers who are organized to prevent human trafficking. And here are some women whose names, I, I'm sure nobody on this um, podcast knows the name of, nobody has heard of them, and they are indefatigably trying to represent young people who are trafficked. And they're doing it because they have a sense of outrage that they would happen. They're doing it out of, out of a sense of humanity to try and stand up for people who are being systematically sexually abused on a daily basis, and it's inspiring when you see that. I mean, I'm also, of course, inspired by great creativity, people who have ideas and push them, whether it be in the social realm or in the business realm. Somebody who is truly creative, and you know, I've met some of the people who are working in artificial intelligence, and you talk to them and you think, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. Something is changing here, and it's just, these people are so smart and so interesting. So I am very inspired by integrity. I'm very inspired by creativity and the people who embody it. And that is one of the great pleasures of life that I take is finding people who are doing hard things 
because they feel it's important that they do it. And, and it's especially inspiring when you realize they're not trying to get anything out of it. They're just driven by their passion to do something. Um, in terms of how you can join with NextGen, I mean, look, go on our website, please, because what we're really trying to do is organize people together, both from a grassroots standpoint and from the standpoint of voice, which is we'll have a ton of information there on things that people can do, on actions they can take, on substantive um, events that are coming up, and there'll be information with you know very um, practical uh, things that a citizen can do to join in to push back against some of the things that are going on in D.C. and to try and build a better country. In addition, on that website, we'll, we, we try to bring a lot of voices so people can hear a, a better way of understanding the United States on an economic basis, on a political basis, on a social basis, on an environmental basis, so that we can think clearly about how to solve these problems. And so, you know, from our standpoint, the solutions to where we are, the pushback against what we think of as Trumpism, is both to be engaged, to have as many people engaged in their civic responsibility in our democracy as possible, and to refute the lies that are being told, and instead to put forward a framework thinking about the future that's much more positive, that includes all the good things that can happen, and so that we start to deal with the real problems in the real world in a positive way. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.